Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare Americana, the podcast telling the stories of all the innovators and free thinkers out there in the healthcare world, more specifically in the direct care world. I'm your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks, the direct care accelerator. Today, we are talking to Dr. Daniel Paul, the CEO and founder of Easy Orthopedics out of Colorado Springs. Dr. Paul, it is very refreshing to talk to you today talk to a cash pay specialist, as I'm going to call it right now, and you might correct me later on, but specifically a physician who focuses in orthopedics, because I feel like you guys are just so few and far between. So pleasure is all mine to have you on the on the show today. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, happy to be here and kind of tell my story about kind of what I'm doing, um, which, you know, is a little bit different than what most people are doing. But uh, for me, it's a lot of pluses and not very many minuses. That's great to hear. Now, usually we talk to people and in our world, focusing the Freedom Health work on the primary care side, DPC means direct primary care. I got to ask you, what does DPC mean to you? How do you talk about it when you tell people about it? So I love DPC docs. I have them for myself and my own family. And I think it's the highest quality of care you can get. And I think what it is at its core is it's relationship-based practice. I think that if you leave a doctor to their own devices, I think that's the kind of practice they'll do where you get to spend more time with patients and really listen to them. In today's healthcare model, that's just not possible. It's all reimbursement driven and they don't pay you for patient education and you know treating a person like a person. And I may know what's going on with the diagnosis real quick, but that doesn't mean the patient does. And the whole process of explaining it to them so they know where they are and how we want to get them better that's a process. And I don't think you can really compress that, but they do in system as I like to call it. And you just end up treating body parts and you're not really treating patients. So to me, like direct primary care is, is relationship-based care. And that's what I'm trying to do in the world of orthopedics, which I guess is kind of new in the sense that I'm the only one I know that's doing it. Right. Right. Do you still call it direct primary care or do you call it direct patient care or how do you define those uh, initials? You know, I haven't really come up with a good name for it. I've dabbled with direct orthopedic care before, but, you know, it's hard. I don't really know. Some people will say, oh, it's, well, it's concierge, but concierge just makes it sound like I'm just seeing like all rich and famous people, which is not what it is. Um, so I don't know, I've called it direct orthopedic care, but sometimes I'm just at a loss and I'm still kind of figuring that out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll chalk it up to the more generic kind of direct care because kind of encompasses everything else. But, um, yeah, the concierge question that always comes up, doesn't it? And it's like, no, no, no. Concierge right now is really splitting from DPC and most concierge practices will still accept insurance, but you're not doing any of that. You said very clearly on your website, very clearly everywhere, no more insurance in my practice, but you are focusing on house calls and do a lot of very cool stuff there. So want to get to that and more specifics about your practice, but wanted to talk about a common consensus or maybe even a misconception that we see in DPC are that specialists are going to be behind the curve, almost laggards uh, compared to primary care physicians, probably because most people are assuming that there needs to be enough volume of primary care patients to support a specialist practice. Wanted to get your thoughts on that mentality. 
I think they're probably correct in that, uh, you know, family medicine docs or internal medicine doctors are going to be leading the way here. You know, they're also some of the hardest squeezed right now, you know, so uh, that's, you know, their visits are cut down so short in system that it's really, it's really depressing to practice like that. And it causes a lot of physicians, a lot of, you know, mental strife, as you know, leads to a very high suicide rate. So I think they're squeezed a little bit more also financially. So with some of the specialists, they're squeezed a little bit less, especially orthopedics, which is one of the higher paying specialties. So I think primary care will be kind of on the forefront of that and everything else will kind of be added to it, kind of like primary care plus. But, you know, if you're talking volume, so this kind of comes back to the whole business model of the thing, right? So it's, it's the mentality of being in system. And, and I use that term a lot because that's just like, you know, that's how we think of healthcare right now. We need to get insurance and take the insurance. You need to go see the doctor and then they send you all over the place. And like, what's your deductible copay? To me, that's very much in system. So when I say in system, I just mean I don't participate in that. So in those practices, you need to have a very high volume to sustain yourself because you need at least five uh, people hired per doctor and they're all insurance and they're all billing mostly. You know, mm-hmm. and um, like, you know, you got to take a step back and like, you know, we're so used to that process and look at it and say, well, what do you really need in a doctor patient relationship or provider patient relationship? And it turns out all you really need is the doctor or provider and the patient. And that's pretty much it. All the other stuff is junk. So when you're working in system, the insurance companies make this deal. With you. They say, hey, take a discount for your services and we'll provide you with all these patients. And you say, okay, that sounds reasonable. And maybe it is. But then they don't tell you is, oh, we're going to make it really difficult for you to get paid. And they just keep adding hoops. So you keep hiring hoop jumpers. And it's this like arms race. And the overhead gets crazy high. And the reimbursements go down. So the volume question, I think, should be phrased. Well, like what, you know, if, if you go out of system and you remove all that, the volume you need to succeed is much lower. The business model is much more durable. So I wouldn't be focused so much on how am I going to see 50 people a day? That's just not the right way to do it. You're thinking about it wrong. That's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I like the term that you mentioned. It's an arms race. Um, they keep slapping regulations on you or more rules and you're trying to hire staff up. But eventually, I mean, that outcome is pretty much fixed. You know, is it is it the the small physician office who's able to hire enough people to play defense almost and stop playing offense? Or is it the hospital, the in-system, as you keep calling it? I love that term. Who's going to st- keep throwing things on your back and keep weighing you down until finally something breaks and you just give up? And I think that's what we've seen in the past 20 years of healthcare is people just, you know, they give up. You mentioned the physician suicide rate, and that's a subject we've touched upon before on the show. Um, it, it is really tragic. And it's like when you, Dr. Paul, in your shoes, your profession is now the number one suicide rate out there and people, hospitals, employers are looking at us saying, well, I know our people are stressed. They don't like, you know, what they're doing personally, professionally. I hate the term burnout. That term to me is just an oversimplification. It it kind of dehumanizes physicians. Yeah. It's also a victim blaming term. It says, well, you're, it's, it was your fault that you burnt out. Meanwhile, you're dealing with like, dozens of system issues it's you know but yeah they're not just skipping over that part well no it's your problem that you know you can't you know you know run 10 miles with 200 pounds on your back you know but well you know that's just unfortunate you're burning out you know that's but, a great point that's a great point it's like there's something wrong with you you're defective why don't you figure it out here's a yoga class 
Right. God. Yeah. I mean, and there's a um, family physician, Pamela Weibel, who I listen to a lot, and she's big on this whole topic of physician suicide. I think she's something she said one time, which I found I really enjoyed. She says, you know, you, she calls these things like human rights violations. And she says, you can't yoga away human rights violations. That stuff is okay. But again, it's just band-aids. It doesn't address the main issue um, that's causing physicians to be unhappy. Yeah. And I think at or most physicians really do like to practice and they do like the art and practice of medicine. They just don't like how it's being delivered and the way they're forced to be, to do it. I mean, you have a system in which the physician loses complete control of their practice, right? You have clinic managers who will double book you, triple book you, but you still have all the responsibility. Nobody wants to touch that. You know, they're not going home at night worrying about a, B and C what happened with this patient, but you are because you only spent 10 minutes on in scene 50 of them. So those things add up over time. Yeah, not to mention the the leagues of lawyers uh, that are employed by these systems. And guess what? Not many of them are on your side when it comes to uh, showing up if something was ever a problem as far as fatigue goes or being rushed or triple double booked uh, appointments. There's always some hungry attorney out there waiting to to go after your license or your med mal. So it, it's a total lose-lose. So let's flip it here and talk more about the breath of fresh air that you're experiencing because your DPC journey kind of started uh, in your residency, which is really, really cool to see because we're starting to find a lot more kind of early career physicians looking at direct care and DPC. So tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you got into your practice, uh, easy orthopedics and what led you here. Sure. So, I mean, I'll say this. When I was in residency, I never thought I was going to go and start my own practice and kind of go totally rogue. I mean, I love it, but that's not what I thought, right? I thought I'm going to finish my residency. I'm going to go to fellowship. I'm going to do a fellowship and I'm going to go into practice and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to work and I'm going to be happy. And I think that's what everybody thinks. So here's what happened in my situation. So I'll take a step back. So, I mean, it's hard to get into medical school. And then once you're in, you just grind, 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 grind. And then you get into residency. Again, orthopedic residency is pretty difficult to get into. So I was super happy to be able to do that. And then, I mean, if you were thought you were grinding before, well, now you're really grinding. As a medical student, you're often say, uh, oh, man, I just, I just got to get out of here. I got to get home. I got other stuff I want to do. But then when you turn into a resident, you're like, well, you let that go because it's too painful to keep that mentality. You just have to let it go and say, you know what? If I'm here waiting for three hours for this case to go, then I am. So anyways, more grinding, more grinding. So then I start uh, a fellowship in hand surgery. And a couple things happened there. One of them was I was looking for a job, right? You know, that's the next step, which, you know, I'm just following the track and I can't really find one that I like. So my wife is from Colorado Springs and I've been dragging her all over the country to medical school in Florida, a residency in Ohio, you know, now to fellowship. And I can't find a job that I like out there. They're few and far between the ones that are there are, they're just abusive. You know, they want you taking call for their entire practice or you're talking about a four-month guarantee, which is pretty unheard of. Most places are two years. And so that's going on. And, you know, you talk to the people in your fellowship. They're like, well, if you don't get a job now, and this is like September, right? This would be a job almost for a year later. It's like, well, then what are you going to do? Are you going to go do locums for a while? And then you get out and then you can't do the A, B, and C. And it's like, okay, so my whole career is done because I don't have a job like at this moment. And I went on some interviews and I'm like, man, it's just these old unhappy doctors telling me about how much money they made in 1990. <laughs> while lowballing me at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's Seriously. Like, these guys, these guys are miserable, you know, before the RVU system really kicked in that's going on. And then at the same time, I kind of had a family crisis. So, I mean, 
it's like I had like a family crisis, you know, and, and this existential crisis at the same time. And it was just totally blew me off course. And, and I kind of picked my head up and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? The thought is, oh, I'm going to go to medical school and then residency fellowship and um, get a job and whatnot. But I'm like, this is just a miserable, this misery just got, and the only reason you make it through like residency is like, oh, it'll get better. It'll get better. And it kind of marginally does as you go year after year. But I'm like, I've seen these guys late in practice. They're unhappy. I'm like, this is just a path of misery. And it's like, this this whole thing of like, what am I doing? So I said, you know what? There needs to be a change. So uh, I quit my fellowship broke my lease and, you know, moved out to Colorado. And I said, well, what am I going to do? I'm like, well, I don't really know. Um, but I do have this friend. His name is uh, Dr. Jared Mate. I went to medical school with him and he's got a house call practice down in South Florida. I went to university of Miami, so that's where he is. And I'm like, not only is he doing better financially than anyone else I went to medical school with, he's also happier than anybody I, I knew. And I'm like, you know, there's something here. And so, I said, I don't know what this looks like for orthopedics, but I'm going to find out. And that's kind of just how I started the business and just started hustling. I mean, I had to learn a lot of things I never knew, like just just general business things, you know, marketing, networking, SEO, um, you know, contract negotiations, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, But that's kind of been the growth pattern. And that's how it got started. So, yeah, it was a huge leap of faith. But at that time, it seemed like such a better option than just following this course of misery which so many doctors are on and you see it they're like they're counting down the years until retirement i knew one doctor he was counting down the days people used to laugh at him they say how many days and he'd hold up he'd be like 67 66 65 and that's when i met him and he wow. was super happy real miserable guy and it's like how long was he counting down the days he was probably counting down the years how many years was he counting down you don't want to live like that no at least i don't no i don't know a lot of people who want to live like that it's like watching the sand leaving the hourglass and you're excited about that. And you're like, wait a minute, this is, this is not the way to go. So I totally agree with you right there. Um, well, Dr. Paul, we're going to take a quick break here and, and, and uh, here's some messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back after this. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs and employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.work and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. 
Hey everybody, welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I'm your host, Christopher Habig. Today we're talking to Dr. Daniel Paul of Easy Orthopedics. Dr. Paul, you were just talking about your journey into direct care. And I mean, that's a it's a pretty fascinating story. And and I have to congratulate you on one hand because you picked your head up out of the sand probably before anybody else really did. And you were able to learn and absorb those experiences of people you were talking to. And, you know, you mentioned that you were just having interviews with people and they'd tell you how much money they were making in the 90s. Do you think that being in orthopedics, that money has a way of glossing over a lot of those problems that a lot of your peers are encountering in the way that they're able to care for patients? Um, yes and no. So, like, orthopedics is one of the highest paid specialties. So, right now, these guys do pretty well. Um, but reimbursements, I think next year they want to cut all orthopedic procedures or Medicare does by 5% and then joints an additional 5%. And, uh, you mark my words, that'll be the trend that's going to keep going on. And these guys will just accept it because they have no other <laughs> yeah. choice. They do make a lot of money, but a lot of them also spend a lot of money. So, you know, they're on the hook here with like, you know, uh, these gigantic houses. Some of them have multiple wives and, um, <laughs> they, and that, that's a whole different story in itself, but they could, you know, <laughs> They could, uh, I've met a lot of narcissists. I'll just say that. And a lot of them in the field that I'm in. So, but yeah, the money, they definitely get really kind of focused on the money and that may keep them like, look, if reimbursements got cut in half tomorrow, yes, it would get them thinking about other things, but the change is so slow and incremental that I don't think it's enough to push anyone out altogether. Um, I just think with, with primary care, it's, it's just much farther along. Um, as far as that's concerned. But uh, you mark my words, orthopedics will be cut by a lot in the following years through Medicare. And then the other insurance companies use Medicare um, as a guidepost. And uh, you'll see that happen as well for what that's worth. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's going to ever disagree with you on that one saying, oh no, the government's going to increase spending on these things because it's a lot easier to you know, starve residency programs out and create a physician store shortages you know, rather than adequately fund these things and bring supply back up to demand. But then you look at it and say, well, that's a lot of money going to these uh, physicians here. So these must be the bad guys, right? You know, it, you see well, physicians as scapegoats on cost a lot. It's just like, oh my God, it, it's, it's head scratching. Uh, it's mind numbing. Well, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's a zero sum game with Medicare. There's so many, so, so many dollars to go around, right? Medicare cannot negotiate its drug prices, which came out with Medicare D and something around 2006. Don't quote me on that exact year. So as these drugs shoot way up, I mean, there's where your Medicare dollars are going. All the commercials on TV for all, uh, you know, all biologics, which are ridiculously expensive. Not that they're bad drugs, but I mean, my God. So, you know, you can blame it on doctors all you want, but we don't, we're not the ones with the gigantic lobbying groups um, changing policy and, you know, <laughs> can hire giant PR uh, uh, companies to, to obfuscate all this yeah. stuff. But we're an easy scapegoat, right? You go to the doctor and like I said, it's not relationship-based medicine. The doctor sees you in 10 minutes and they don't like that either and didn't listen to you. And, you, you know, you get a little resentment and we're a perfect scapegoat. You know, we also, I don't think, can legally unionize. And also more than that, a lot of doctors don't get along with each other. It, it's really, you know, they end up, at least in the world of orthopedics, I'll speak for my own specialty. You often see um, it'll be in a certain area and there'll be two large orthopedic groups. And I've seen this more than once. And these guys are all both really busy. They do the same thing. They take care of patients. They do the same thing. And they hate each other. And they just always fight. And it's like, well, you guys are bickering with each other. Medicare is lowering your reimbursements. And you're having a, you know, a crappier existence year after year. It's like you're fighting the wrong people. Like if we could just come together 
yeah. it may be a little easier. So I think a lot of the solutions moving forward are, are based on the individual, kind of like the individual direct primary care docs or people like me and us kind of coming together and creating our own individualized value network of sorts. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that and, and, you know, give us, give us kind of the lowdown on how your practice operates. I am super lean. The, the funny thing is there's a lot of uh, uh, requirements, but they're all reimbursement related. There's not actually that many legal requirements. You have a medical license. The, the, the government is, is very hesitant to put actual legal uh, restrictions on what you can do. It's always been that way. So they're all reimbursement related. So once you remove that, I mean, you have a lot of freedom. So yeah, I run super lean. It's just, it was just me by myself for a while. And uh, now uh, my wife helps me. And, um, you know, I do house calls. I do them because I like doing them, but also I don't have the overhead of an office. It allows me to be flexible. Actually, what I found now is that I'll do house calls, but I also have other providers saying, oh, well, you know, if you're doing orthopedics, well, maybe you can stop by my office and see this patient here. So I'm all over town um, doing all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just when I'm in these facilities, it's value added, you know, but I'm all self-contained. I have my own kind of billing and no and EMR and everything like that. Um, you know, and I carry a bag around with kind of essential supplies that I need pretty much everything to do injections, suturing, casting, splinting, all that. And then uh, surgeries are up in a surgery center. I love the uh, concept of house calls. We always talk about Norman Rockwell, kind of romanticized physician view, and that's it. You know, you, you got your, your little black medical bag, you're walking around to people, you're going to the patient. And it's so cool to hear doctors like yourself talk about that because so many times doctors treat patients like, you know, it, it's kind of a necessary evil sometimes and they have to come to their office and waste their day and they're two hours behind. And it's like, you know, when you're talking about your practice and you can see the passion coming through, but it's like, you really value the people that you care for and you value their time. And so I'm sure that you blow the minds off your patients who are like, wow, this doctor is actually going to come to me. What are some of your reactions that you get when you actually uh, walk in the door of someone's house to treat them? Well, I think before I even get there, just first, like, is this guy for real? Like, what is he doing? You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> He's too good to be true. Well, yeah. Well, house calls used to be very common. I think it was either in the 30s or 40s. It was about 40% of all visits were house calls. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they make sense. You know what I mean? If someone's not feeling good or they're hurt or they're angry, you know, they can't move that well. Like, you come to see them. Um, but then with the introduction of insurance, they basically made it, I think by 1980, it was like 1%. And, um, and mostly eliminated it because now if I were to go see someone with insurance on a house call, they're going to pay me zero. They're going to say that didn't qualify for a house call and they're not going to pay me for a regular visit. They'll just pay me nothing. Mm-hmm. And then I have to fight, win a court case essentially to get paid. But yeah, going back to your question, usually they're very excited about the whole process. I mean, it's, you know, if I'm five, 10 minutes late, well, you're just in your own house. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, um, they have my, um, it's very personal care. Um, and I think what really is the real thing is that it's relationship-based. So I'm not rushing. You get to spend as much time as you need, whether that's a half hour, you know, I've spent an hour and a half before. It just depends on the person. And when I'm done, there's no questions and they have my cell phone number. I mean, that's kind of, you know, and I encourage them to call me because what's the point of them calling, you know, all right, what's the normal process? So you go to a big uh, practice, you have a question for your doctor. What are you going to do? You're going to call the front desk. Who's going to transfer it to the medical assistant. He's going to ask the doctor while he's in between patients who may get a response back and then goes back to the patient. It's like a if game of able, telephone. Yeah. You're, yeah. First, you're going to 
you're going to touch one for the front office and then you're going to hit three to speak to somebody else and you're going to hit four and five and filter your way through the phone tree before you're actually talking to anybody in order to get transferred to some other part of the practice. Right. And it's, and then it's got to bounce to the doctor and bounce back to you. So usually, so, I mean, that's not a good process. And the doctor is ultimately answering the question anyway. So I just give them my cell phone number and they can text me or call me. And, um, I think that just saves a lot of steps. So they're usually really like excited after the fact, like this was great. You know, I don't, I didn't know anyone was doing this and this is so much better than what I've been doing. Um, and I just think the business model of delivery being relationship based, is just so much more powerful than this transactional volume based model that exists everywhere else. Right. Right. So usually when we're focusing DPC in the primary care part of it, doctors are building out recurring revenue and building out subscriptions. How does your business model relate to this? Um, just seeing pa- patients in house calls or more what I'm going to call episodic care. And then I'm really curious about how you interact with surgery centers too. So, you know, first question is, what is the business model? Um, do you have a membership? And if not, how are you able to sustain your practice? I don't have a membership. So yeah, it is different in that regard in the sense that I treat you until you get better. So sometimes it's just one visit. Sometimes it's a couple visits. Um, I do a lot, uh, with, uh, like, uh, medical liens. So with car accidents, and it turns out that that's a pretty good fit for my practice because it's all usually musculoskeletal issues. So those people I'll see a few times and that's essentially cash meaning. And when I say cash, I just mean, I don't have to fight with insurance companies to go through that process. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do those few things. I would like to get a membership model, but really more on the employer side. And that's kind of a nut that I'm trying to crack right now. Because I really feel like my services will be such value added to an employer in the sense that it'll be like musculoskeletal cost containment. So that's kind of where I see the third kind of arm of revenue coming from. And I'm trying to get that going. But yeah, sure. I mean, there's certainly swings. I mean, some days I'll see a bunch of people. Some days I won't see hardly any. Like I said, it's a, it's a new model. Um, and I'm really just figuring it all out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you do have to go into surgery, um, you know, surgery centers are something that it seems like hospitals have some say there. They have some direction of where these things can go or how they operate. What's your interaction like if you do have to go to surgery for a patient? That's a really good question that you asked. So there's a really dirty game that goes on with hospitals that a lot of people may not be aware of, especially primary care docs probably won't be aware of it. So if you're a surgeon, a lot of surgery centers require you to have hospital admitting privileges in order to work at their facility. Now, where does that come from? So that's a Medicare requirement, which was actually repealed about a year ago, which says if your facility takes Medicare, you need to make sure all of your doctors have admitting privileges. Okay, sounds fine, right? If something's wrong, you can admit the patient to the hospital. Great. But what actually happens is that if you're a solo practitioner going in, these hospitals will not grant you admitting privileges because somewhere on that board, at least in my case, is another orthopedic surgeon. And they will deny it because it's anti-competitive. It's, you know, it happened to me. I've seen it happen to other surgery centers. And it's this game the hospitals play where they can essentially stick their fingers in all these ASCs um, and control that. So like I said, that Medicare law was repealed a year ago, but some of these surgery centers still haven't changed their bylaws. So we may see that change. But anyways, so what I did personally was, well, first I found that, I found that whole game out and I'm like, oh, this is pretty messed up. And then I found a, I found a surgery center that uh, didn't take Medicare and they just, they, they credentialed me there and um, they still have a transfer agreement with the hospital. And let's be honest, it, 
you know, if something is ha- happens to a patient, they're going to the hospital anyways. It doesn't matter if you're a transfer agreement or whatever. And the hospital is going to deliver standard of care. Um, so that's what I did. But, you know, in finding that solution, A, it took me a while to figure that out. And then B, I've had to kind of put my own equipment and build it out for orthopedic stuff. So mm-hmm. I've been in the process of doing that. But yeah, I kind of had to pave my whole way there. And that's not even a problem that I anticipated when I started, because when you're in training or you work for a large practice or a hospital, they're going to pave the way for you to get those admitting privileges. But uh, going back, I don't want to work for a hospital. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look. I think hospitals, they used to be for community benefit and charity care, right? And that's why they're tax exempt. Now you have them essentially bankrupting the community by, you know, charging these crazy amounts for care with mail. Maybe they're out of network, you know, maybe someone doesn't have insurance. And then sending people to collections. So now you have a nonprofit sending people to collections. So they're not investing money back into the community through taxes and they're bankrupting the people in it. So I don't support what they do. I'll be very upfront about that. I don't, and I don't want to work with them. So for me, finding a solution that's outside of that system to me is a big success. Yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir right here. Um, so it, it's kind of this theme of, when you walk into surgery centers and you don't have the right paperwork filed and they're putting their own people in there, does that help build kind of that rivalry that you were talking about uh, specifically amongst your specialty, amongst orthopedics, who some people are just flat out barred from using surgery centers, no matter what quality of care they're able to give? Yeah, look, these guys, so, and I thought about this a lot. So at least with orthopedics, and again, I'm speaking to my specialty because that's what I'm most familiar with. It's a very competitive specialty to get into, right? So you need to be near, you know, you need to be hard to get into med school and then you need to be on the top of your class to get into orthopedic surgery residency. So um, you end up getting, you know, a very smart, competent, but also an extremely competitive person. I mean, these guys will often compare themselves to Michael Jordan, which makes me so angry because (laughs) his job was to compete, right? That's how he was great. He, he, He was an ultimate competitor and that was his job. But as an orthopedic surgeon, your job isn't to compete. Who are you competing with? Your job is to get the patient better and work with everybody else around you, not to yeah. like, you know, do more knee replacements than the guy across the street. And it just drives me insane. Um, yeah. But anyways, that's the type of person you get coming out. And these guys will be extremely territorial. And, you know, they'll, like I said, it'll be a guy who have, you know, who can see a hundred patients in a week. And God forbid one of quote unquote, his patients that he quote unquote owns now, which is a person, um, comes to you, they lose it. And I've just seen it. So yeah, these guys are anti-competitive and I think it's just holding our own, our whole specialty back. And I've seen that with other surgical specialties. I heard a story once of a urologist who kind of got the back door into admitting privileges by being part of the military, you know, so they required admitting privileges and he went into his own private practice. But as soon as he had one complication, they crucified him and he lost his, you know, admitting privileges. So yeah, it's a real stupid game that's being played um, that probably mostly only surgeons are aware of. So I'm happy to talk about it and make people more aware of this kind of silliness that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Since you've dug into kind of some of the dirty secrets of hospital practice, specifically in orthopedics, I remember a conversation I had with a local orthopedic here who was wanting to do a lot of what you're doing, right? He called it orthopedic primary care able to triage patients without an agenda from the administration because he got frustrated because he said, Chris, when I was working for this hospital system, and it's an Indianapolis-based hospital system, he said, I had to submit at least one-third of the people who came into my office for surgery, whether they needed it or not. And that's what the business model was built off of in a nonprofit hospital, like you said. And, you know, that's scary. (laughs) 
Yeah, I've heard stories of that. You know, it'll be like a renowned shoulder surgeon. And then like, the, you know, the head of the hospital is being like, you need to do more. Why didn't you do surgery on this guy? It's like, well, he didn't meet the indications. Yeah. Well, you need to expand your indications. And it makes the doctor look like a bad guy. But it, if he doesn't do that, he'll get pushed out or, or fired because it's all about production, right? So you can yeah. say, no, this person doesn't need surgery. And then they take away your block time and they'll play real dirty. Yeah. So I definitely understand his uh, frustration and, you know, and that make, you know, that makes people not want to practice anymore. Doing surgery when the indications are loose is really not a good idea, right? You get a complication from that. It's a disaster, right? And you're doing it. It's not a good, it's not a good route to go down. Yeah, I hear that. And I heard that story and this was a couple of years ago and my jaw hits the floor. I'm thinking, this can't be pervasive. This isn't how this works, right? And then you learn more about it. You're like, wow, this, um, this is not uncommon by any means uh, for people to be treated like that when physical therapy or DMEs would work just as well, right? And gosh, you talk about physical therapy yeah. and how underfunded that is when you talk about Medicare before. Oh it's, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. It's, it's scary, really. Well, yeah, well, they get hit too, which is really messed up. I think what was like an 8% cut. Don't quote me on these exact numbers you know, from <laughs> well, Medicare from one year to and it's like, um, you know, did physical therapy get 8% worse that year? Like, no. But, you know, there's only so many Medicare dollars and they're going other places. So it gets cut. Yeah. And you look at how cheap it is for physical therapy to fully run its course, but then they, they half-ass it and only give them partial treatment. And then that person ends up having complications and, and has to have the surgery again. So no one's actually mm-hmm. looking down the line, which is kind of indicative of a political system anyways. You know, nobody looks at consequences in the long term, everyone's looking at right in front of their nose of what is the most immediate fix? Where is the most immediate cost containment or cost cutting uh, measure? And, and, you know, how can we continue to just, no pun intended, but kneecap ourselves in patient care and in, in uh, yeah. the physician's realm as well? Wanted to, uh, yeah, like I said, sorry, yeah, I'm just, you know, it gets me kind of, I just almost have to inter- interrupt because it just gets me so heated about this. But yeah, they just, I mean, you're colossal complete control of your own practice. But re- remember, you have still all responsibility and it just, it just, it's not right. Yeah, no, I, I like it. You get fired up. You're passionate about it, like I said. And, you know, without trailblazers like you getting fired up and getting passionate about this, uh, there'd be a lot more people who are potentially worse off going through a system without even knowing about it. Coming to the conclusion of the episode here, and this has been a pleasure talking to you. Last question here, wanted to get your thoughts on what makes it so difficult for specialists, surgeons to break away from that hospital system? What is it that people are so hesitant to strike out and do something like you're doing? Gotcha. Well, it's kind of like I'm plugging from the matrix. Like, you know, once you're out, like you can't, you don't want to go back in. But what makes it hard is, well, there's one thing. There's, there's the mental aspect of it. So when I was an intern in residency, I used to get in trouble a lot. Not for medical-related things. It's just because I saw system processes that I thought were ridiculous. And I'd be like, hey, this system process is ridiculous. Why don't we do it like that? And you get the same response every time. This is the way we've always done it. And not, and not only do they just say that to you, they beat it into you. After that happens a few times, you say, okay, let me just keep my head down. I don't want to make any waves, no ripples. I'm just going to do my job. And, you know, they keep adding things and you're like, well, this is a terrible idea, but you know, or administrative junk, you just keep doing it. So it's this mentality of just being just, just beaten down over time. 
you know, and I was fortunately able to get that back when I had like, you know, my existential crisis and I had mine at the beginning of my career, which was a blessing. Instead of when most people get it later on in their career. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's also a lot of uncertainty and unknown, you know, I mean, what's it going to look like? How are you going to do it? I mean, you know, I think docs are very, very risk averse. Um, so you're asking them to take a fairly decent risk and especially if they have a lot of debt or they bought a house that's too big or they're on their second or third spouse, like they're not going to be able to do it financially. If I told people what I was going to do before I did it, they would have told me like, Oh, you know, that'll never work. You're an idiot. But you know what? It did work. And you know, I'm, you know, I don't know what to say about that, but yeah, you essentially comes into this, you get your creativity and ability to take risk beaten out of you through medical training. And you need to utilize both of those things to basically, you know, unplug and they're not able to do it. Yeah. We call it the addiction to salary. Um, we talked about that on a previous episode and I love that term because you see that not just in medicine, but you know, across businesses and it is that addiction to salary. Like you said, whether you have lifestyle that needs to be upheld or people don't want to change, but it's amazing that people will endure a certain level of misery as long as that paycheck keeps clearing. And it's sad. It's a sense of security and you need a lot of creativity and not be averse to risk to break out of that. It's a big, it's a big activation energy to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Paul, how can people learn a little bit more about your practice? I'm sure that this will generate some, some phone calls or emails saying, hey, I'd like to, th- to talk to Dr. Paul here, see how he's doing, see what's going on and see how he did it. Yeah, happy to help anyone. I mean, the real goal here is to create this other value network so we can disrupt the original system because that system is never going to get fixed, uh, especially not on its own. So the best way to contact me is uh, through my website. It's easyorthopedics.com. That's E-A-S-Y-O-R-T-H-O-P-E-D-I-C-S.com. There's a contact form there. There's a phone number and there's an email. So, you know, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I encourage people that if they're thinking about this, I would love to talk to them. Absolutely. And, and I love talking to specialists like yourself because the more we fill in kind of that gap, and I look at direct care as kind of linear A to Z, a is primary care. You got the entry level there. Z might be some cash surgery centers where we can generate domestic medical tourism, but we got to fill in the gaps in the middle. And that's where most of the naysayers come in saying, well, what are you going to do about orthopedics, cardiology, urology, neurology? So the more specialists we get on board here, um, the better off this entire movement is going to be. So Dr. Paul, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great speaking with you too. And I hope more people are willing to take the jump um, because you know what? They'll uh, be happier. (laughs) Me too. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) To catch all of our episodes and past Healthcare Americana interviews, visit healthcareamericana.com. To learn more about direct primary care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. I'm your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for tuning in. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com 
and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.